It is truly good to be with God's people this morning. I don't know why, but it struck me this week what a blessing it is to gather with other believers and to renew covenant with God, to be blessed through singing together, praying together, worshiping together. And so I want to thank you all for being here, and I pray that you would also be blessed this morning. We are still in the Psalms for, I guess, four more weeks before we move on to our winter series. So you can find Psalm 6 in your Bible. We sang it already this morning, but please turn to Psalm 6. Once you've got it, then I will ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, please. And these are the words that David wrote through the inspiration of God. These are God's words. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of the grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And may God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So after doing 10 psalms by the end of summer, hopefully we all have a good feel for the psalms and have learned something about them. I talked to one gentleman who said he wasn't sure how much benefit there would be in the psalms, but now that we're in it, uh, there's great benefit. And I understand the psalms will speak differently to different people. Uh, for some, the psalms are, are unfamiliar and, and maybe largely not you know, seemingly that helpful. They don't really connect in such a way. Uh, and I would have been that person, and I've shared along the way here some of my own kind of emotional or mental struggles that I've had in my life, and I have found great comfort in the Psalms. I learned to love the Psalms in that time, and so hopefully uh, you can relate already, or maybe God will use this in the future uh, at some point to, uh, to minister to you when you need it. But the Psalms are a great place of comfort. Uh, there's several ways to categorize the Psalms. We've talked about some of this already, uh, but who knew that the Psalms was actually five books? There's actually five books in the Psalm, and if you look closely, you can see book one, book two, book three, uh, and there's different themes that are in these different books. And so the first 41 Psalms uh, are the first book, and the theme in these Psalms is God beside us. And so you've probably noticed, uh, some people say I'm a repetitive guy, but some of it I kind of can't help because these... <laughs> These are somewhat repetitive psalms. The, the theme is strong that God is beside us. In the next book of Psalms, 42 to 72, uh, you have a picture of God before us. He goes ahead of us and fights on our behalf. Book 3 would be 73 through 89, and it's God around us, God surrounding us. And then 90 through 106, book 4, is God above us. You have a picture of a sovereign and mighty God above us. Uh, and then the, the closing book would be Psalms 107 through 150, and that is God among us, God in and among his people. That's one way to categorize the Psalms. Uh, another way to categorize the Psalms, inside all these books, there's different genres of Psalms. And we've discussed some of this. 
We have psalms of praise where David is just overflowing with joy to the Lord. Uh, and we're going to have one of those in this first chunk of 10. Psalm 9 is that way. We've got psalms of, uh, of penitence and lament. We've looked at some of those. Psalm 3 was one of those. Today, Psalm 6 is one of those. There's psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of confidence, uh, messianic psalms or royal psalms. Like we, we looked at in Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. It's all about Christ taking his throne. There's psalms of remembrance. Keith did Psalm 1, which is a psalm of wisdom. Uh, and we also have psalms of imprecation, which is uh, those that make North American evangelicals feel very uncomfortable, and that is for God to destroy his enemies. Uh, but these are also psalms that, that are there. I found one also very interesting theme to categorize the psalms, and these aren't in contradiction with each other. These are, are patterns people have noticed. Some are intentionally put in these books. Um, but if you're familiar with the four angels or the four seraphim in Ezekiel and then they appear again in uh, Revelation, you have ox, lion, eagle, and man. Remember those angel faces? You've seen those? Um, and some have seen a connection with that uh, kind of progression through the Old Testament. The ox uh, represents you know, kind of steady plodding and obedience, uh, so the priestly era of God's people. And, and so this would relate to obeying God or the Pentateuch and the law. Uh, the next stage of history, so to speak, is the lion, uh, which is kingly, right? A lion asserts dominance over his domain. Uh, and so this has to do with dominion. And so the books uh, at, at that stage of God's redemptive history would be books like Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Job. The Psalms fit in there, and then the Gospels. Uh, the eagle is above it all. He sees everything, and this would deal with the prophetic era, uh, where we see everything from above, right? And so uh, the prophets, of course, would naturally fit in there. Chronicles, the book of Acts, exactly, would, would fit with that kind of theme. And we know Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And so ox, lion, and eagle relates to that. I find that an interesting thing. And, of course, the man would represent Adam to Christ uh, and Christ having his dominion over, uh, over the affairs of men uh, all through creation. So there's different ways to understand how Psalms fit in redemptive history. It's all quite interesting, um, and again, after 10 psalms, hopefully you start to get a bit of a feel for what's happening, uh, at least in these psalms. So as I mentioned, Psalm 6 is a penitential psalm, and it is especially fitting for those who struggle uh, either with their physical health, because clearly physical health, uh, I think, is in view in this psalm, and like many of them that have gone before with your emotional or your mental well-being, your spiritual condition of your soul uh, is deeply intertwined with your physical health. And so it starts, it says, to the choir master, verses 1 through 3, with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? And so this is another one of David's psalms. Half the psalms are written by David, half are written by other musicians. Uh, and this is to be played on a harp, or, and that's what this weird language is here. It, it sometimes describes the kind of instrument that the psalm is to be played with, or the kind of choir that is supposed to sing the psalm. Uh, and so this one is designed for an eight-string harp, or an octave, uh, and that is to give uh, a, a deeper or more somber tone, which would be fitting with, uh, with the content of the psalm, is that it would be lower, slower, and, and more kind of morose style of music. And, and so the the opening is fitting with that. 
And as we read into it, we see clearly that David is struggling, and seemingly with his physical health, since he speaks of struggles or trouble in his bones in verse 2, and he's even considering the, the possibility or the reality of physical death in verse 5. So clearly, uh, whatever anguish he is going through, it's affecting his body, his physical well-being. And as he struggles along, he is asking once again for mercy from the Lord. And we don't know what the circumstances of this psalm are. With some of them, it's very clear related to his adultery, related to the, uh, to the affair with Bathsheba and Uriah. This one doesn't tell us exactly what the circumstances are. Why is he struggling? And why do we struggle? If you're like me, you sometimes, you know, a certain struggle or a certain problem comes along and you wonder, okay, why is this happening? What does this relate to? Right? Which sin in my life is this teaching me about? How, how is this connected to this? And we do that, if you're like me, you do that in your own life, but we also tend to do that on a bigger scale. Some of you are old enough to remember 9-11, right? September 11th, 2001, where, uh, where the planes hit the Twin Towers and the towers fell. Interestingly enough, I was going back, um, Table Talk Magazine, which is uh, from Lagonier Ministries, uh, the devotionals get published months ahead of time. Uh, and their devotional for September 11th, 2001, was about 1,000 people perishing in the fire at the Tower of Shechem. <laughs> okay? So it's an interesting thing. Um, not planned out. They had no idea what was going to happen uh, on 9-11. But there it is in the devotional. And, and you see stuff like that and you, kind of your hair tingles. Like what? <laughs> Clearly there's something providential about these kinds of things. And we want to see those things. But after 9-11... Uh, a minister who was fairly high profile at the time, uh, Dr. Jerry Falwell, went on TV and, and he explained quite clearly, fairly certainly, how this was a punishment from God that had to do with the abortion and the sodomy and the sin that was existing in America. Uh, and he made a fairly close connection uh, between those things. And then another you know, round of fairly well-known evangelicals, but on the more liberal side, went out in the uh, they went and kind of covered Dr. Falwell's tracks and said, no, 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 that would never happen. God doesn't work that way. There's no connection between evil and suffering uh, and so forth. So what do we do with that? Who's right? Well, the fact of the matter is we don't know who was right in that situation. Okay? Uh, I think Dr. Falwell knew too much about that situation. We don't live in an age of prophets who can explain exactly what each act of providence means. We, we don't know that. So he may have said too much. He may have made a connection that wasn't truly there. But then those who go and say, well, no, God would never do that, are clearly mistaken because very often God clearly connects temporal, physical punishment with actual sin. So it could be uh, that 9-11 related to specific sins that were popular, common in America, or it could not be. We, we don't know. Uh, and however curious we are, we have to hold ourselves back a little bit uh, from trying to read too much into providence. And we also need to resist the urge to not see providence as all, as though there couldn't possibly any kind of connection. That's not the case at all. Uh, Matthew Henry, commenting on this, uh, reminds us that extraordinary afflictions are not always, they may be, but they are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins. But sometimes the trial of extraordinary grace. So it could be that the struggle in your life, the pain in your life, it could be a result of sin that you need to clean up. Or it may not be. Maybe you're just getting your next promotion. Maybe God is putting you through the ringer so that you grow and you are ready for what is next in the story. We don't know. 
We just simply don't know. In Luke 13, Jesus is confronted by those who are uh, reading too much into their understanding of the providence of God. And you maybe know this story. In Luke 13, 1 through 5, it says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Okay, and so Jesus here, he's confronted by people and and some extraordinarily bad events had just happened. So in the one case, a tower fell on a bunch of people and killed them. And in another case, people were worshiping peacefully and Pilate came in and butchered a bunch of them while they were supposed to be peacefully worshiping. And these people come to Jesus and say, is that a punishment for their sin? And what does Jesus say? He doesn't actually answer it. He kind of hints that it's not what it is, but there's still a warning there. Right? Jesus' way of handling this isn't, oh, no, 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 God would never do something like that. Just don't sweat it, right? Uh, not at all. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All of you, the people who happened to, to die there, and you talking to me who survived it, you all need to perish, or you all need to repent, because somehow or another, all of you will perish. You all need to be made right with me. So there's not a clear one-to-one connection with a, a direct event and a direct sin, but we also know that that is possible, right? We just talked about uh, David and Bathsheba's son died as a baby, and God explains directly, that's because of your adultery. That's why this baby will die. That's why there's going to be civil war in your house forever, and it will not be resolved because of that. So it can be, but in the absence of a prophet, we simply don't know. In my own life, and maybe you, you relate to this, when I, when I, I shared how my struggle was after we had started farming and, and the depression and the anxiety ran very, very deep, and I started to wonder, okay, what am I being punished for? And I would think back to this event, and, oh, did I handle that well? No, I, no, I didn't. Did I handle this well? No, I sinned there. I shouldn't have treated that person that way. And I started to wonder, what's the, what's the you know, and once I can make that connection, I can go resolve it, and then my suffering will be over. And maybe you're like me, maybe you're not. But that was the question I struggled with. And I soon started to realize, once you start to peel away the onion layers of your heart, you realize there's no bottom. Right? There's always another layer of deception, self-lies, mixed motives. I'll never get to the bottom of this by looking inside my own heart. What does the Bible say? The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. I will not find the answer in here. And I don't need to. Okay? One, the gospel comes from outside of us. And two, do I have to know the origins of my suffering to learn to grow in humility and grace? Do I need to know why this depression came upon me in order for me to have a repentant heart and grow closer to the Lord and to put all sin that's currently in my life to death? Do I need to know that? No. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I will, on this side of eternity, I will never know that. And neither will you about your suffering. What we can do, though, is whether we understand it or not, we can use those struggles, we can use those trials and afflictions to at least acknowledge, yes, there is sin in my life. And whether I'm being punished for this sin or that sin or sin generally, I need to be soft. I need to be instructed. I need to be taught by the Lord. And so if he is putting his hand rather heavy on me right now, I can still learn. I can still become soft. 
I can still become repentant, and there's nothing from stopping me from going to the people whose names I suddenly remember in different interactions and making things right with them in that circumstance. It's good. God will use it whether we understand it or not. C.S. Lewis has once noted, I think well, when talking about suffering. C.S. Lewis was a, a bachelor well into his 50s, Finally got married as later in life, uh, had a very joyful marriage for a very short period of time, and then he lost his wife. And he went through a deep struggle. He wanted to be married all his life. He had to wait till he was in his 50s. He's married. This is such a joyful chapter in his life. Then it's over. She's gone. And he writes out of deep, deep pain in a number of books. And he has an insight that I think speaks to us. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures... He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Isn't that true? It has to hurt sometimes for us to listen, doesn't it? Whatever the cause, if our suffering causes us to be more humble, more grateful, and to press deeper into the grace of God, We don't need to press into the origins. We don't need to read providence. We don't need to interpret providence. We don't see enough. Just a few moments reflection on our own sin will clear our eyes enough to see uh, that we are fully dependent on the grace of God. We are sinful and we need to throw ourselves to to his grace. We are not innocent. In those moments we see lots of sin in our hearts, lots of sin in our lives. And so when we think about this, talked a bit about this this morning in Sunday school and it's true when we think about this when we go through these periods we sometimes start to self-pity or to think about ourselves because of how badly it hurts and the common question is why do bad things happen to good people start to wonder it want to know the resolution to that problem that's never ever happened nothing bad has ever happened to a good person ever in all of history it's never once happened Oh, so Matt, you're a Scientologist now, or you're a, you're a Hindu? You don't believe in suffering? It's just an illusion, and, and you just need to tough it? No, no. It's not that I don't believe in suffering. I don't believe in good people. Okay? The Bible tells us there are no good people. Our hearts are wicked. They're desperately sick. They're diseased. And going inside, deeper into your own heart, will only get you more of the trouble. Right? Uh, follow your heart. Ask Eve how that turned out. Right? Ask Eve how that turned out. We don't look into our hearts. We have to look outside of ourselves. That's the point of suffering. Look outside of yourself. Stu touched on this last week when he was preaching on, uh, on Psalm 5, how we get the gospel backwards in the culture, right? What does the, what does the world around you say? You're good. You're good. You're, you're wonderful. Everything, uh, God's just so infatuated with you. He just can't, get, he can't keep his hands off you, He's so, right? He's so enamored with you. You're so good. You're wonderful. But the reason there's bad stuff is because of systems, Right? There's systems in the world, and that's what's really bad. And so how do we be rescued from evil? Well, we have to get back inside ourselves. Have to get back inside ourselves. What does the Bible teach? The exact opposite. You are the problem. You are the problem. I am the problem. Right? Uh, and so we don't go searching back in the septic tank of our own heart to find the solutions. We need a gospel outside of us. We need a rescuer outside of us. Okay? And once we see that, it just changes everything about our disposition. Rather than laying on the ground, ow, 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 why me? Well, you know what? Feeling like we've been hard done by. Reach out to God. That's your rope out. That's the, that's the way out of your problems. You've heard me quote Chesterton lots. He was a genius, I think. Uh, 
In the late 1800s, the London Telegraph newspaper asked uh, contributors for a series of essays on what's wrong with the world. And all these philosophers and, and some Christian churchmen wrote these long articles about what's wrong with the world. Chesterton was a well-known academic and poet at the time, and he just wrote his essay, and he submitted it to the London Telegraph. And they published it, and they said, Dear Editor, you asked what's wrong with the world. I am G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> okay. that's, the, that's the correct disposition. What's wrong with the world? I am. I am. I need a rescuer. I don't need to get deeper into myself and struggle. I need to get out of myself. And if you're thinking really deeply, and you're thinking, well, no, there was one person for whom bad things did actually happen. Uh, you are right, but he signed up for it. Okay? And you're thinking of Christ. He signed up for it. It didn't happen to him. He wrote that story. So the whole disposition that suffering causes in our hearts needs to change the way we think about things. And David, in his struggle, whatever the circumstances are, has clearly come to that recognition. He is owed nothing by God, and so he appeals to God's mercy instead of to God's justice. And have you ever noticed that? That's a theme, really, that's coming through quite clearly so far. You notice how David never uh, appeals to God, God, I deserve. God, I did this, so please, in return, do this. God, it, David never appeals to God's justice. He appeals to God's mercy. David knows who he is because he knows who God is. And for that reason, he says, God, I will need your mercy, not your justice. You may have also heard me tell this story. I, I asked my family on the way here if I'd shared it, and they basically didn't think I had. But if, you, if I did, then I'm sorry. Blame my kids for misleading me. Uh, if, we, if we want to think about fairness or what we're deserved, R.C. Sproul has the, the most wonderful illustration from the time when he was teaching at uh, Philadelphia or at Pittsburgh Seminary, where he's, he says he was you know, a young professor, and the, the first round of essays is due at a certain date. And he had about 200 kids in his class, and he said, you know, sure enough, 185 essays get handed in on time. And, you know, there's 15 kids. Oh, Dr. Sproul, I'm so sorry. You don't know how hard the apologetics class was and I was working on my paper. Please, Dr. Sproul, please, please, can I have an extension? Yep. Yeah, you can have an extension. Oh, thank you, Dr. Sproul. You're so kind. You're so nice. And a month later, the next term paper is in. And 150 papers get handed in. And there's 50 kids. Oh, Dr. Sproul, I'm sorry. I was so busy on the basketball team. Dr. Sproul, please, can I have an extension? Please, please. And Dr. Sproul says, yes, you may have an extension. And a month later, the next round of term papers is in. 80 kids casually come walking in and throw their paper on the table. And they're like, hey, no worry, Dr. Sproul, I'll get it to you next week. They start to presume on his grace. And he says, you know what? You know, Smith, F. Johnson, where's your paper? Oh, I, I don't have it. F. Okay, Murphy, where's your paper? Oh, I didn't have it. F. And with one accord, all the students, what, what, what do you think they do in that? Dr. Sproul, that's not fair. Oh, now we want to work with what's fair. All right. I recall back here, you also didn't hand it in on time. F. Back here, you didn't hand it on time. F. That's fair. That's fair. That's justice. David and us, if we are in tune with the purposes of God, should never ask God for what's fair. Fair is very bad for us. The gospel is a gospel of mercy, of grace. We should appeal to God's mercy, not to what we deserve, because what we deserve uh, is not the outcome we actually want. 
And so David knows this well. He has seen enough about his own sin and his suffering that he knows he's getting what he deserves. Okay? And if he gets what he deserves all the way, it will be eternity in torment apart from God. So he is appealing to God's mercy. He's pressing into God's grace. And we've seen, as is often the case, joy can seem to be fleeting when we have it. Uh, and it but punishment or, or, or difficulty seems to last forever, right? And, and you know that in your own life. You get, you get a new car and it's really exciting for a couple of weeks until it's not. But when we're struggling, when we're in pain, it seems to last forever. Even a week or two can seem like an eternity when you're struggling. And, and again, in my own case, several months of depression felt like it was never going to end. It felt like an eternity. And if you've had some of those struggles, maybe it's chronic physical pain. I don't know what it's like to live with chronic physical pain, but I would imagine it feels like it just never ends. It just To live with pain all the time, I can't, I can't relate. I don't know what that's like. But suffering feels like it's just there, ever-present. It's not fleeting. And some in our culture would have us treat our bodies as though they don't matter. The physical world doesn't really matter. And so we, we think about deliverance as being re, re, removed from our bodies or, or denying the physical world. Right? That's what Scientology does. That's what Hinduism does. Is, uh, salvation is released from the physical body. And even at Christian funerals, we sometimes mistakenly give that same indication that salvation is getting out of here. Now they're free from a body. And, and the, the, the emphasis on Christian funerals even has moved from a hope in a future resurrection, enjoying the new creation with God forever, to just treating the body like, okay, good, I'm glad that's over with, and now we just get to be disembodied spirits for the rest of eternity that's not the Christian hope. Bodies are real. Physical pain is real. Physical anguish is real. Our minds, our brains, it's all real stuff. God made all of it. And so it's okay to take our physical concerns to God. My back is sore. My knee is blown up and I can't do anything. And it's just, it hurts all the time. God is good to hear those things. He cares about those things. The physical creation is not a throwaway thing. And so again, in David's case here where he's obviously in anguish both in his body and in his soul we don't know which came first okay we don't know whether his uh, his spiritual suffering has created physical pain in his body or vice versa but you can see how they're related right sometimes people that struggle with chronic pain uh, their minds or their, their their outlook their emotions start to get very dim and understandably so but likewise unresolved guilt unresolved sin i think causes more physical pain than we sometimes give it credit for Okay? Yes, you can see those bones twisting on the x-ray. But to what degree is physical tension, to what degree is your unresolved sin playing in that? It's possible. Okay? Again, we can't, see, uh, we can't see it, we can't say definitively, but I think this is a two-way street. I think unresolved sin can cause physical problems in our bodies and vice versa, uh, quite obviously. But we, again, we don't need to know because God cares for us body and soul. We can take all of our problems to God, whether it's in our body or in our mind or in our heart. And David, again, under anguish, under feeling like this is never going to end, he says, oh God, how long? And then he turns in verse 4 and 5. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For, there, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And so David is shifting his thinking from about his trouble to his position with the Lord. Where's God in this? He acknowledges that it will have to be the Lord who saves him. David can't. Clearly his physicians can't help him. His musicians can't help him. Salvation will have to come from the Lord, from outside of him. Deliverance must be from the Lord. And notice further, he doesn't appeal 
to God to deliver him, even in his mercy, for the sake of David. Right? He's not saying, oh, my kids need me and, and the, the, the kingdom of Israel is going to come unraveled if I'm not their king anymore. So, so, Lord, do it for my sake or do it for the sake of your people. Uh, what does he say? Do it for the sake of your steadfast love. Okay? Do it for your love. For your steadfast love. And this is a common appeal in scripture. And God even talks this way. He's not, he tells Israel, I'm not doing this for you guys. I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this to make my name great to all the nations. That's why I'm going to save you sinful Israelites yet again. Not because you deserve it, but because I want my name to be great among the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Philistines. And David understands that. His posture is correct. David knows that everything, including his own body, his own reign, his own family, is existing for God's glory. And suffering has helped him to see it all the more clearly. David knows, if I get what I deserve, it will not be good. I am appealing to God for his mercy, and I am appealing to him to do it for his love, because that's who he is. Okay? David is praying the promises of God back to God, and we've seen that as well. How much does God love it when we remind him of his promises? Not because he's forgetful, but because He's getting his truth into us. And when we say, God, you promised, do this, please, rescue me. He loves that because we are in tune with who he is, with his character. And we read this funny verse in verse 5 that talks about no remembrance of death. And we sang it as well. What do we do with that? There's no remembrance of death. So is David some kind of a guy who just believes in annihilation, for example, or that there's nothing after death? Uh, and clearly the answer is no. Uh, one option would be to say that David, uh, because he's in the Old Testament and most of what we know about the, the new creation and about the resurrection happens in the New Testament, David's understanding is too primitive and he doesn't really know what's ahead. Uh, and so in David's view, there is no resurrection. Sheol or the grave is just the end of things. But I don't think that works. I'm sure David's view of the resurrection was dimmer than ours is because he didn't have the New Testament to read. But David is also the author of Psalm 16, which is all about resurrection. So clearly there is a concept of resurrection in David's mind. I think the best understanding here when we read this is that David is still too young to properly desire death. And he sees how much good would come from him living longer and completing more of the work that the Lord has for him to complete in this life. He wants to remain among the living so he can continue to participate in the public worship of God's people in Israel. So this starts to sound a lot like Paul's appeal in Philippians where he says that to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, if this is the end of me, if if I'm going down into Sheol, which is just the grave, uh, then that is good. But that's not what I want yet. I want to be on earth. I want to serve you as king longer so that the people will know you better. But he is ultimately submitting himself to the Lord's purposes. So I think David knows that Sheol is not the last word. It's a temporary stop on the way to the resurrection, into eternity with Christ. But he wants to keep living for now because he still senses that God has a call on his life to do more. And again, relating this and applying this to our own circumstances, I'm sure we've all had experiences of older people who have reached this tipping point, right? Many of us have had parents or grandparents who have passed away, and you can kind of see when that tipping point starts to happen. Both of my grandmas died last year, uh, and both of them talked till pretty close to the end as though they wanted to live, until they didn't. And it was clear they had reached that point, uh, I've lived my life, it's, it's time for me to be with the Lord. Okay? And, and that's appropriate, that can be appropriate. 
Now, if someone my age had that prayer, something is probably wrong, okay? But if you are an 87-year-old lady who is at the end, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with wishing for this to happen, okay? So it's not that David's uh, reflecting on this is necessarily wrong. He just feels it's not his time yet, okay? He's got more work to do. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a, a, a well-known Welsh Methodist minister in the 1950s and 60s, before he entered the ministry, was a, a, physic, uh, a medical doctor, a physician, uh, actually serving the royal family until he felt God's call on his life to enter into the ministry. And so he became a different kind of doctor. Uh, he was a very busy man, preaching several times a week, writing books, teaching young preachers, uh, giving lectures at different places, traveling around the world. Uh, and he got to a point in his own life as well where he said to his students, please don't pray for me, I'm done, right? It, it's time for me to go on. Don't pray for healing anymore, I want to die, okay? And, and I don't think that was inappropriate uh, or wrong. There's just a different time for everything, and the Bible teaches that as well. Verses 6 or 7 says that David is weary with his mourning, with his moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief, and it grows weak because of all my foes. It's been said, truthfully, I think, that the true test of a person's character is who they are when no one's watching. Okay? Who are you when no one's watching? That's your integrity. When no one's watching, no one can hold you to account. Of course, God sees everything. But there's no other people around us to kind of force us to externally do the right thing. Right? And we all see when people do things for attention. Um, don't judge me, but many years ago, I was... It must have been in the background, because I would have never done this intentionally. But Oprah was on TV. Forgive me. Okay? Oprah's on TV, and she had Aretha Franklin there. Right? Aretha Franklin was a popular singer in the, in the 60s, and Aretha Franklin was an older lady already, and she's on Oprah singing. Uh, and Oprah starts to break down in weeping because of how beautiful Aretha Franklin's music is. But of course, she's looking at the camera to make sure that the camera's catching her good side crying, right? Because it's not just that she's so overcome by the music, she needs everyone to know how overcome she is by the music, right? She's a celebrity. People need to know uh, what her emotional state is, right? And, and we do that sometimes on a smaller scale too. We do things for publicity. We do things so, not because it's right, but because we want to see, we want everyone to see us doing the right thing. But David's doing this in bed where no one can see him. He's crying. His, his pillow is filling up with tears. This is who he really is. He's really cut to the heart about his own sin. He's really feeling it. And David has nerve endings. He has lots of passion, lots of zeal, lots of heartbreak over sin, lots of desperation for God to intervene, and beneath it all, a burning zeal for God to be glorified. This is a David who had high highs and low lows. He's a real person. The Bible doesn't dress him up at all. He's just like you or me. Hard edges intact. And, as we've seen so many times, David is able to reach a point at which he has cried his last tear. He has spent himself completely. He's made his plea before God. He's cried his eyes empty. And then, when he feels that the Lord is ready to answer, he picks himself up and he gets back to it. And you see that change in his emphasis here as well in verses 8 through 10. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Notice the radical departure. He's, he's crying his way to the bottom. 
Now it's time to pick ourselves back up, clean ourselves back up. God has answered. God is listening. Now it's time to move on again. And so there's a newfound confidence in David here. The enemies of Israel never fail to exploit David's weakness. And often people who are in opposition to you personally or to the church, uh, they will not fail to exploit a weakness. If they see something wrong with you or if they see something wrong with the church, they will remind you and everyone else around of that. Okay? And we need to push through that. When the people of God are struggling, we should expect that people will leverage that against us. They'll mock us, ridicule us, tell you your religion isn't working. Perhaps they'll remind you of your sin and maybe those sins are real. And they'll let you know that they're so bad that they can't be forgiven. God would never forgive something that bad. Right? We're beyond hope. That would, might be what we would be reminded of. But David has pushed through that despair and the discouragement and the mocking, and he has trusted the Lord to the point of being able to push back against those enemies. He's confident that the Lord has heard him and accepted his prayers, we saw in verse 9. And now he has the confidence that the Lord will turn the taunts of his enemies back upon them. We've seen so many times how God frequently turns, uh, turns evil on itself, right? Where God uh, gets the story to a certain point and then he completely reverses it. Most dramatically, when evil men nail Jesus to the cross, hoping to forever close the gate between heaven and earth, when all they've done is kick it wide open so that all heaven is going to break loose on earth. God has turned their evil on their head and they don't even know it. And David is preparing himself for God to do this yet again. This is the kind of God we serve. David has seen this many times in his life. And he is once again uh, committing himself to seeing the Lord do the impossible. So how does this help you and me? The challenges we face in our lives often have a way of hurting us deeply enough that heart change and sanctification can happen in our lives. That's when we learn, is when the struggle is on. We typically don't learn very much when life is easy. And while the devil and your opponents would like to see you become discouraged and despair and give up, the Lord would have us use those moments to press more deeply into him, to see that on our own, our hearts are an open grave. We need salvation from outside of ourselves, not from inside of ourselves. The world has an external gospel, or an internal gospel and an external problem. The Bible has an internal problem and an external gospel. And when we make our appeal to God, we do it as those who are not asking God to put his stamp of approval on whatever we want to do, whatever Matt's last vanity project is, I ask for God's blessing on it. Not at all. What this means is that we get ourselves aligned with what God is doing for his own glory. It's a, it's a realignment of the heart, and it's painful. It was painful for David. Most likely, if you look back in your life, the times where you have learned, where you have been humbled, where your purposes have been aligned with God's, it's probably hurt, and that's okay. It's the kind of world we live in. That's the, the kind of God uh, that we serve. He does these things for our good, not just to put his stamp on your life, but to get you aligned with his purposes. And because we're proud and stubborn, it does sometimes hurt. But there's glory at the end. And so when you're struggling, you can pray again. You can pray these same promises. God, do it again. Do it again. You've done this a million times before. Do it again. I know you're going to get glory in this situation. I don't know how. I see no way out right now. But I know you've done it before. You'll do it again. God, do it again. Please, rescue me. Save me in a way that I can't even picture. Okay? And repentance gets us to that point. Repentance isn't just for individual sins. It's for sin 
And sin runs much deeper than individual external actions, which we call sins, which really are sins. It gets right to the heart of it, and that's why it hurts so much. Open heart surgery is not easy. It hurts. It's a big operation, but God is willing to do it for his glory and for your good. At the end of the rope, at the end of the struggle, once the bed is filled with tears, once we're confident God has heard our prayers and it's time to get back, get dressed again, and head back out, God hears us and accepts us, and we know that. He has promised that. We can have joy, okay? and we can press more deeply into the promises of God. And I'll leave you with one story from another pastor who had been counseling a young woman who was recently married. And uh, long story short, there was sexual dysfunction in their marriage, and she felt it was very much related to the fact that her and her now husband uh, had been sleeping together before they were married. And she felt, possibly correctly, that the reason things weren't going good in their marriage is because they had sinned before the Lord and they had been doing this. And she goes to this minister and she says, I have prayed so many times for God to forgive me and I just don't feel forgiven. I feel like he can't forgive me for that. What do I do? And the minister had said, well, ask God to forgive you. So I've done that. I've done that ten times already and I, I still don't feel forgiven. He said, no, no, don't. Don't ask for forgiveness for that. You've already done that, and God has forgiven you. Now you need to ask forgiveness for not trusting God's promises. He's promised to forgive you, and you're not accepting that promise. Lean into that. You need to ask forgiveness for not trusting God at his word. Okay? If you have asked forgiveness, he has forgiven you. That is washed clean. You don't need to feel guilt and shame about that anymore. That's what you now need to repent of so you can enjoy God. Enjoy his promises. That's where we get to at the end of our rope. There is joy at the end of this tether. And so let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for these psalms. I want to thank you for uh, the anguish and the turmoil and the very real-life man that David was and all the places you led him for the building up of your kingdom uh, and also for the building up of us, your saints. Lord, that we can see and we can relate to those parts in the story where it hurts so bad, where we see no way out, And you are good, and you answer us, Lord, when we cry out to you. I pray for each one here. Lord, of course, we don't know everyone's circumstances. We don't know where the pressure points are. We don't even understand the pain in our own lives so often. But, Lord, that pain is there for a reason, and I pray that we would not grow discouraged by it, that we would not give up to the sin of despair, or to not believing you that you could forgive us for whatever sins uh, we have committed. Lord, I pray that each one here would know that forgiveness, that they would press into that promise. Lord, that we can have joy knowing that our sins are wiped clean. We have peace with you. Lord, and if there are those here this morning who do not know that peace, who do not know you in a saving way, then Lord, please, we ask that your spirit would come. Take out the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they would see this, that they would repent and know that joy is at your right hand forevermore. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you that you walk through the valleys with us. And we commit each person into your hands. pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. The charge is this. God made whole people, body and soul. So it is to be expected that affliction in one area affects the whole person. God frequently uses suffering in one or both areas to get our attention and to draw us to himself so he can further advance the cause of our joy and his glory. The repentance and the learning that happen when we suffer can be as painful as the suffering itself. Yet David shows us that there's no need to pretend 
that it's easy when it isn't. Take your burdens to God. Be honest. Be invested in the work God is doing in your life. And then take rest in the fact that God has heard you, he loves you, and he has your eternal joy in mind with everything he does in your life. He is so committed to your everlasting joy that he will see to it that you cannot become content with a shallow life of ease, comfort, and the accommodation of sin. The love of the father may hurt at times, but a good father is for his children. When the intensity of the pain and the tears lift, then know that your prayers are accepted, your sins are forgiven, and your shame is removed forever. And then take the benediction from Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And go in peace.